the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 20, Episode 6. The Political Consequences of Donald Trump's Indictment. Talking with David McEwen, Chair of Political Science at Sonoma State University. Our guest today is Professor of Political Science and noted commentator David McEwen. He joins us from his home in Sonoma. Hi, David, and welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, as you know. Thank you, David. So much of Donald Trump's political career has been unorthodox. Is this indictment another strange turn that he will take in stride, or is it the beginning of the end? What a place to start. I mean, everything about Donald Trump as a politician, everything about Donald Trump as the leader of the Republican Party, and everything really about Donald Trump as a person is indeed unorthodox. And while this is both stunning in terms of the indictment, historic, unprecedented is a word we often use or maybe overuse, it can never be overused in terms of Donald Trump. (laughs) There are so many things here that are interesting that are provocative. And right, you have opening day for baseball where all 30 teams play for the first time since 1968. And of course, 1968 is the year that we uh, elected Richard Nixon, the last president to face anything like this. Mm -hmm. And yet it's nothing like anything we've ever faced because of indictments that we will see unsealed, most likely on Tuesday, and indictments that would likely be forthcoming from Georgia, from perhaps the Mar-a-Lago documents case. I mean, there are a number of things. And this is a guy who potentially would have, if you will, dozens of potential indictments as he seeks the Republican nomination and a return to office as president of the United States. That is simply incredible. It means it's going to be an uneven, wild spring. It's going to be an uneven, wild summer. It's going to be an uneven, wild ride into 2024 and perhaps even past 2024. It seems like, once again, Donald Trump is going to be sucking the oxygen out of the room, out of the air, out of the political context. I mean, just as he did in 2016, there was a almost a morbid fascination with him. And this time around, even more so. In fact, I think that these indictments, as you've, as you've outlined, could potentially be even more energizing for him and for his base than his run against Hillary in 2016. Maybe, maybe he was looking for this. Yeah, I I think in some ways his preemptive strike in terms of announcing what would happen on the following Tuesday, which didn't happen in terms of indictments, but kind of setting things up. It it is clear uh, that his team was caught off guard by this. The White House was caught off guard by this. But nonetheless, everyone knew that that some level of charges and an indictment and the process, the logistics herein, were forthcoming. However, given all of that knowledge, there are some things that are just really unsettling about the politics of this. First, the political effects are going to change early and often. In the short term, he uses it to raise money. He uses it to push back on Governor DeSantis and anyone else who potentially would threaten the plurality of the votes that he would get in a Republican primary. It's still his party. It's still his nomination to lose. And in some ways, this 
uh, set of indictments. If there's over 30 charges or around 30 charges plus that go on, it's going to cement his role as the nominee, as the de facto candidate to beat for the Republican nomination. But he's never won a national vote. He lost in 2016 on the popular vote. He lost in 2020. Republicans didn't do well in 2018. They haven't done well in 2022 in the post-Trump era. Nonetheless, he is someone who still can get, garner this primary nomination. He's someone who can control the first debate that's held at the end of August. He is someone who controls the Republican Party up and down the ballot. And that is something that is really uh, incredible, given what has happened. He's also someone who can run for president, whether he's indicted and convicted. Even as a felon, he's not barred from running for office. Uh, we have had precedents for this in terms of our uh, political history. When Eugene Debs ran for president in 1920 as a member of the Socialist Party, or Lyndon LaRouche, who, who some of your listeners may recall, he ran for president in every election from 1976 to 2004, including in two elections in 1992 and 1998, when he ran from prison when he was convicted of tax fraud and mail fraud. So, so there are elements here that are historic about Donald Trump but also kind of mimic those candidates. Obviously, those candidates weren't successful. But Donald Trump is someone who is going to change our political atmosphere every week and every month. Democrats go crazy yes. when Donald Trump uh, says anything. I mean, they just, they just go apoplectic. Nonetheless, they're going to talk about the process, about American jurisprudence, about the process of being thought of as innocent until proven guilty as being paramount. The, the White House is going to have to do this. And yet, at the same time, Democrats have to be filled with glee about this. But Republicans also are making the argument, and I think, Jim, this is one thing to pay close attention to. Republicans are making the argument that this is a political persecution, that this is the weaponization of the law. And that may work for this set of indictments or for this particular set of circumstances. That doesn't work in terms of Georgia. That doesn't work in terms of January 6th. And it certainly doesn't work in the secret documents case of Mar-a-Lago with all the various uh, avenues that, that the special counsel and special prosecutor Jack uh, Smith is looking at from the Department of Justice. So that line of inquiry and defense for Republicans will wear thin as dozens of indictments appear over, say, the next year or year and a half even though it is unlikely that we see trial dates related to what is going on with this Manhattan indictment for a year and possibly even longer, because theoretically it could string out even two or three years, given all of the various avenues that the former president would have uh, available to him. David, what is it in the current American political framework that would permit tens of millions of Americans, primarily Republicans, certainly in the primaries, to vote for someone who has been indicted. And, and admittedly, these certainly the indictments that were handed down yesterday, which have not yet been unsealed, but the indictments that were handed down yesterday are largely political in nature. Do you think the American voters, Republican voters, are saying, you know what, he didn't kill someone, he didn't rob a bank, these are political crimes which in the hierarchy of crimes are much lower down the list of 
importance to us as voters, therefore we're willing to overlook them. Is that the psychology? Is that what voters are are thinking that, you know, political crimes just don't rise to the same level of seriousness as personal safety, threats against personal safety, uh, theft, violence, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, look, there are 74 million people that come along with Donald Trump. That's not a small number. And these are individuals who give the president a pass, the former president a pass, for many reasons. And some of those reasons are that they believe that a case that involves a hush money payment to a porn star from a personal account through perhaps the Trump organization and involves some level of of tax and campaign finance law, uh, they don't believe that that rises to the test of indicting a, a former president. So, so he gets a pass and he gets a pass regardless of the avenues or the opportunities or the conditions that are short of really trying to do things that betray his oath to the constitution. Now, you would argue, however, that January 6th is a condition mm-hmm. where this gentleman actually offered to overthrow the United States electoral process, mm-hmm. to overthrow the government, and that's a big deal. However, mm-hmm. the, what his uh, supporters would say is that they would expect that the procedural process, the evidentiary process, and the constitutional protections that are in place would all be used to fairly adjudicate and push back on all of these conditions of a man who is unfairly being prosecuted for political purposes. So it gives them a psychological and process-oriented pass for this president where he can do no wrong. And there's no other person in the Republican space that gets that. Nikki Haley doesn't get that. Mike Pompeo doesn't get that. Mike Pence, former vice president, uh, Mike Pence, he doesn't get that. And certainly Governor DeSantis of Florida doesn't get that. So Donald Trump carries with him a political kind of, if you will, kind of sainthood by his supporters Mm -hmm. where he can do no wrong that is unprecedented in modern American politics. And it only brings 70 plus million people, which is not enough to elect him president, by the way. But it's enough to galvanize a movement and move him forward as the Republican nominee, a place that in some ways is counterintuitive to everything that we've seen develop. In other words, I think at brass tacks, we cannot write his political obituary yet again, despite all the travails and things that he has done since he vaulted onto the national American political scene in 2015, 2016. Well, to your point about the his supporters giving him a pass. He was the one who in 2016 characterized it by saying, if I were to walk out in the middle of fifth Avenue, kill someone, murder someone, I'd still have my supporters with me. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he, he admitted that in 2016 and he, and that seems to be the case. I mean, he, he seems to have correctly assessed the fervor of his supporters. I think that is one of the elements as we look back at the history of of American electoral politics in this kind of pivot period from 2016 to 2020 to 2024. As we look at that period and we're going to look back at it, you're going to see someone in Donald Trump who may have done many things incorrectly. He certainly has given a lot of fodder to multiple venues for how he operates. And he may indeed had some type of criminal enterprise or may had some type of operation that operates on the margins of 
what is legal and uh, certainly that which is moral or, or even that which is distasteful or, or whatever you want to say in terms of decency. Nonetheless, Donald Trump has been able to put his finger on the pulse of a group of voters who uh, feel left behind, who feel uh, aggrieved, who feel that things have changed in their America since 1968. So what we've seen in the modern conservative era from Richard Nixon to what Ronald Reagan talked about in 1976 and gave rise to success in the 1980s, and even some ways in what Bill Clinton adopted in the 1990s, and then a pivot back to Donald Trump by the 2016 period. This is someone who has been able to put his finger directly on the pulse of those grievances and to leverage it for political advantage. Has he been able to extend that? Yes. And I think this is a component of what to pay attention to, because if this indictment also signals a new play like the twice impeached president, Donald Trump, in the past, where impeachment has become essentially a political tool of impotence, and at the same time, now indictments have entered into the fray of regular political discourse for no one being above the law. And that signals, I think, a new epoch in terms of American electoral politics and the presidency. David, one of my concerns is that, as as you said, he's been impeached twice. Now he's been indicted. There may be other indictments coming down the road in Georgia or the Mar-a-Lago documents or the January 6th events. What concerns me is that the fact that so many, 70 odd million voters are willing to overlook that is really causing an erosion of our political standards, political trust, trust in the rule of law. Where does it end? I mean, on the one hand, there may be a large group of disaffected individuals who feel that Donald Trump is their champion, their their leader, but at what cost? Yeah, I think that is the million-dollar question. I think there are a couple of things here. One is that while justice moves slowly and politics moves much more quickly, this is an element and evidence of how the American system of jurisprudence, how American democracy can work. So I, I take a slightly different tact, and that is that this is reassuring that no one is above the law. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the tenor and the times, in terms of how Donald Trump addresses American politics, how he has changed the model and changed the model towards himself or towards uh, that which is about aggrieved individuals and in some ways is distasteful, in some ways is vulgar. That element of what you're talking about, I think, is someplace that we have been for a long time. And if we look more broadly and deeply at American politics, it's always had this kind of thin veneer of of decency, but behind the scenes has been a really a a, a bloodletting sport. And and politics is that, that giant game for adults. Donald Trump has taken it farther. Has he destroyed the mold? I don't think that's the case. I think that institutions are still strong, but does he have the ability to leverage violence and a movement of 70 million plus people and maybe 20 or 30 million additional sympathetic individuals Mm -hmm. that can be costly to democracy? Yes. Can it destroy democracy? I am still of the view that uh, we are a strong nation of decent people and that we are moving forward and that what we are seeing is our fits and starts 
based largely on demographic and social and economic change. And Donald Trump is the symptom of those de- of, of those developments that are problematic for us. He's also someone who's closer to the end of his political influences mm-hmm. than he is at the beginning or middle of those. Mm-hmm. Let's look at Joe Biden, because he, of course, is now saying that he's going to run for re-election come 2024, when he'll be, what, 81 or 82. Assuming that he does run for re-election, and assuming that there's a 70 million-plus voter block that out the gates Donald Trump can depend on, what kind of a campaign do you think Biden would try to wage against him, and especially if we are in the throes of a stronger than expected recession, how do you think Biden would wage a campaign against Trump? Because don't forget, 2017, 2018, 2019, until the advent of COVID, the economy under Trump did very well. And of course, he's going to be pushing that. And if Biden is faced with a deeper than expected recession in 2024, in part because of the banking meltdown, And the credit crunch that's coming as a result of that banking meltdown. How do you think, what kind of a campaign could Biden effectively wage against Trump? I think that's an excellent question, and here's why. The White House has made a number of personnel changes. They've brought in uh, different communications chief, Ben LeBolt, who worked for Obama, who was out here in San Francisco, who's now the White House communications director. They've brought on some other individuals where they're going to be if you will, a White House that is much more assertive about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They're going to be much more offensive about attacking what the differences are that is contrasting themselves with the chaos of Donald Trump. And they're going to be defending their accomplishments and also talking about them much more. Also, that involves talking about reproductive choice with women. Mm -hmm. They're going to be much more heavily involved with that. They're going to be, if you will, just much better at laying out their case than they have been in terms of the slow roll that they have used over the, say, the first 24 months. So I think that's an important development because it signals that they understand what's at stake. If you move forward from that, there are some other developments. One of the most interesting developments of yesterday other than opening day and other than the (laughs) indictment of the former president is that Gavin Newsom launched a, an organization, a national organization called Campaign for Democracy. Yes, in that, fact, I got my invitation to be a founding member of that today. By, there, there you go, by exactly. And, and, and that organization, right, is to fight Republicans and to talk about all of the issues around choice and women's reproductive rights and to talk about Republicans going too far. It is about placing him on the national stage as an alternative if there are any hiccups in the rise or run for Joe Biden for a return to the White House. So there are other Democrats positioning themselves around. This is not that that Gavin Newsom would take on the president of the United States or even the vice president of the United States is that he would be lurking around if there was a need for him to leap in. And it also helps him downstream, if you will, for what's going on. But Joe Biden and his team are going to be much better. They're going to be much more offensive. They're going to go at Donald Trump much bigger. But that means, and notice that they have not announced that they're running for re-election yet. Mm-hmm. And this indictment in terms of politics, much, almost all of politics is about political timing. It's mm-hmm. like 90, 95% of the variance. And this indictment puts off that announcement, I think, farther 
it puts it farther out because the White House doesn't want to talk about any pending litigation or any pending charges related to things like this. So it pushes it out, I think, farther to the end of April or sometime in that in the time frame of the third or fourth week of April, where they would announce that they're going to do this. And as a result, they're going to be much more effective and much more offensive than they have been so far. That means, setus paribus, that there are things overseas that do not upset what is going on, whether that's the detention of a journalist in Russia or uh, events that occur between China and Taiwan, North Korea, Iran, Israel, and so on. Well, David, so I think you're right. Trump is in the latter stages of his political career. But again, it looks like 2023, the remainder of 2023 and into 2024 is going to be another rollicking presidential campaign with Trump in the driver's seat and Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence and Nikki Haley will be at best, at best auditioning yeah. for vice uh, for the vice president role with Trump in the uh, in the lead. Yeah, I mean, look, there are some in the Republican uh, kind of active right on the Trump side who are talking about, wouldn't it be great if you had a Trump-DeSantis ticket? That seems uh, out of the realm of possibility. But look, if you are Marjorie Taylor Greene or if you are Carrie Lake of Arizona, you have to be someone who is pushing on Donald Trump to join his ticket, to be part of that. Georgia is a key state. Arizona is a key state. Mm -hmm. In 2024, both of those candidates would help or try to deliver their states if they were on the ticket. And Donald Trump, again, as a reminder to your listeners, has never lost the Republican nomination when he's been in the running. But he's also never won at the national level on the popular vote. And he was a rounding error in many states that pushed him forward in 2016. And we can kind of dissect what happened in 2016. But nonetheless, he didn't have indictments, which may be a boon or boost to him in the near term. But in the long term, indictments are not good for your legacy or your political career. And it is just less than 600 days between now and the presidential election of November 2024. And that's a lifetime in American politics. And it may also be a lifetime for Donald Trump because there are potentially dozens of charges and indictments that can be leveled over that time, even though he could be running for a president while indicted and charged, but not necessarily have any resolution to those charges as he's running for president until after the election that occurs, which already sets up a discussion that the 2024 election is going to be rigged and is fake. And it sets up, if you will, all of the conditions that we saw that resulted in the events of January 6, 2021. That's an important kind of scary prologue and epilogue for Donald Trump's political career so far. Well, David, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts for our listeners? And what should our listeners be looking for on Tuesday when he turns up in Manhattan, when he surrenders himself, he gets fingerprinted and photographed? I guess the sealed indictment will be opened. What should our listeners be looking for on Tuesday? Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to discuss this first. Second, uh, the indictment should be unsealed at least after the 2.15 Eastern Time rollout of the charges for the former president. So at 2.15 Eastern Time, that's when he is slated to be charged to appear before the court. So we should see the charges roll out by noon 
the unsealed indictment, we would guess, would be available around noon or later than noon on Tuesday. It'll be important to read that for the level of charges. We don't expect that they will involve just Stormy Daniels, that they will extend to other individuals, because if there are 30 charges, 34 mm -hmm. charges, somewhere in that number, that would mean that it would involve additional individuals there. The other thing to pay attention to is any mention of the Trump Organization, because Alan Weisselberg, the CFO who was convicted uh, with the uh, Trump Organization, is going to have a tremendous amount of pressure placed upon him to flip uh, for the government. That will be an important development. And then as you look at and think about what happens with Donald Trump, look, he is not a popular figure in Manhattan. He's a he's a relatively popular figure, but not the most popular figure in Staten Island. So who's in the jury pool? Mm -hmm. And a discussion of where the jury is seated is going to be huge. Because in Manhattan, he doesn't get a jury that's favorable to him, but in Staten Island, he does. Mm -hmm. So that's an important component of what goes on. And the other thing to pay attention here is that the former president has a number of options that involve, if you will, evidence, procedure, process, jury of his peers, that the legal components of what goes on here are hugely important to the former president and can delay the, the trial and the actual movement of what happens next, despite this being a historic indictment. And that's important because what you're talking about is one year out from now at the earliest, that's moving fastest, and it could be as long as two or three years oh. out which which is stunning in terms of what goes on. The other element is I would not expect violence to be going on because Foley Square, where the court is and the conditions, the logistics of that building are such that it can be locked down by NYPD and court security. So it, it actually is, is a, an environment that is not necessarily hospitable to some type of uprising because the environment can be controlled itself in terms of Foley Square for where the Manhattan DA's office and the courthouse is actually located. So 2.15 Eastern Daylight Time or 11.15 Pacific Daylight Time, he will be arraigned, and hopefully we will get to know what the charges are, what he, what the other 30 charges are. And uh, so that's coming on Tuesday. That's right. You expect then there's a couple of hours for photographs, fingerprints, <laughs> paperwork as he enters a plea, so that the period from about 11.15 our time to, say, 3, 3 or so our time would be the processing period for what should happen. And we should see the unsealed indictment during that time period. Amazing. David, as always, thank you so much for your insight and for your detailed knowledge of what's happening in the political realm, particularly with a character as unpredictable and mercurial <laughs> as the 45th president of the United States. Right. So, uh, yeah, as a, as a precursor, or I think uh, an addendum for your listeners, everything we've said uh, is subject to change because this is only Donald Trump. So we know that we're headed for uh, an unsteady, uh, unpredictable environment moving forward. <laughs> Once again, David, thank you. And where can our listeners follow you on an ongoing basis? Sure. So uh, I'm at Sonoma State University and certainly have a web page and, and a presence there at Sonoma State, uh, at Sonoma State uh, Department of Political Science, politicalscience.sonoma.edu. Uh, happy also 
Uh, for any of your listeners to get a hold of me, david.mcewan. I'm the only M-C-C-U-A-N at Sonoma.edu. They can certainly get a hold of me. I'll take uh, and, and respond to all comments, good, bad, and ugly. Happy to engage your listeners, of course, because I love the podcast. Thank you, David. And David, do you have a, uh, do you want to share a Twitter handle with us? You know, I haven't been on Twitter yet, Jim. You're uh, kidding, really? On, yeah, no, I haven't been on Twitter yet, although I do have uh, apparently a Russian bot that disguises itself uh, <laughs> as, as myself on Twitter. So I, I don't know that I really want to change that. That's kind of, a, I think, a, a nice moniker. What a what a prestige to have a Russian bot <laughs> mimicking you. <laughs> I, I think so. I think people are like, you posted this? I'm like, no, that was the Russian bot. The Russian <laughs> bot. To do with that. <laughs> well, David, as always, thank you so much for joining us and for your insights and look forward to following up with you real soon. Well, thank you very much. Again, it's a pleasure to be here. And I know that this is obviously a solemn and special time. And so it's a real pleasure to be here to, to chat with you and with your listeners. It's a quality podcast. And this is also a difficult time, but it also, I think, can demonstrate not just the worst of us, but the best of us as well. I totally agree. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 391 as we continue to mark our third anniversary. Listen to us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or any of the 19 platforms that feature the San Francisco experience. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast and join an audience that spans 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco.